At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Many of us often wonder if going to church is worth it. But what if we told you God has a beautiful design for the church that very much includes you? The book of 1 Timothy speaks to these truths. And if each of us submits to them, our church will function as the loving family God intends. Join us this week as we look at the answers to the question, Church, why bother? If you have your Bible, do open it up to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're in this series called Church, Why Bother? And I want to encourage you, if you haven't picked up one of those books for your life group yet to help you study through uh, the letter of 1 Timothy, they are available on the welcome table after the service as well, so you can grab uh, one of those. But we're in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 20 this morning. Uh, You've probably heard the phrase, let's keep the main thing, the main thing. But what happens when you don't keep the main thing, the main thing? The Coca-Cola company found this out not too long ago. I was actually probably around seven or eight when this all fell out, so I vaguely remember it uh, in the sense that the the beverage that I like to drink, uh, pop as you guys call it, Coke, it tasted different. It was a little weird to me. Uh, Coca-Cola in the mid-80s decided they were having uh, some issues with competition from this other pop company, Pepsi-Cola, and they needed to make sure that they kept their market share. Pepsi had been running this amazing ad campaign. It was the Pepsi Challenge. And they'd go to a, a mall or they'd go to a, a shopping center area somewhere or even a grocery store. And they'd set up a table and they'd have a couple cups and they'd say, hey, uh, we're not going to tell you which is which, but why don't you taste one? Why don't you taste uh, the other? And you tell us which one's the better one. And time after time after time after time, everybody was choosing Pepsi. At least that's how the ad displayed it. Sure enough, they were saying, hey, Pepsi tastes better. And that was the narrative that was spilled out into culture. Pepsi tastes better than Coca-Cola. And so all of a sudden, Pepsi-Cola and their market share in the soda pop industry starts to increase. Well, you can imagine the executives at Coca-Cola start to freak out. I mean, they are the world leader in pop. I mean, everybody knows Coca-Cola. But now all of a sudden, this little upstart company, PepsiCo, is like taking their share. They're taking their business, and the profit margins are dwindling. And the narrative is, well, it's because Pepsi-Cola stuff tastes better than Coke, right? So we should buy that. So the executives at Coca-Cola, they decide, listen, this is, this, is, this is easy to fix. It's not a problem at all. Here's what we'll do. We'll change our recipe. People want it a little sweeter? We'll make it a little sweeter. We will, we will change the tried and true classic Coca-Cola recipe, and we'll come up with something called New Coke. And it'll, it'll blow everybody's mind. and It'll just blow Pepsi out of the water. New Coke is the thing. It's the way. Well, here's what happened. New Coke was an absolute failure. I mean, almost immediately within the release of New Coke, Pepsi, or, uh, Coca-Cola's stock prices went into the tank. I mean, they just dropped immensely. The, the call centers, the customer service centers at Coca-Cola started getting tons and tons of phone calls every day with people angry that they changed the recipe. In fact, one study revealed that they had had over 5,000 calls on average per day. And as this, as this marketing shift moved into the summertime, the, the high time when you would buy these beverages, uh, they, their call center, they found that they were getting over 8,000 calls, angry calls, every day saying, you changed my favorite thing. They had to hire more operators, get more people on the uh, customer service uh, team to help with that. One letter, one person wrote in, and he said, I don't think I'd be more upset 
If you were to burn the U.S. flag in front of my yard, we're just that adamant about his Coca-Cola. They shelved the tried and true faithful recipe, and they failed miserably. I had a, a person this morning in the first service who worked for Coca-Cola during that time, and he was like, I could have told him the exact thing. I don't know why he wasn't the exact, but he's like, it's all true. It happened. It was amazing. He said people were hoarding Coca-Cola, classic Coca-Cola, like it was the toilet paper that we were all hoarding around COVID, right? I think there's a lesson for us in the church today about this. It can get really easy and exciting and even expedient, some, some, somewhat thrilling for us to start chasing what, what might be called a shiny object that we can neglect and overlook and miss the main thing. We, we can move away from, as a church, we can move away as Christians from who we are and begin to chase the distractions or the diversions or even the divisions that the world and our enemy throw our way. If the church ignores and diminishes and sidelines or even forgets or assumes the main thing, which I'll contend is the gospel, we will find ourselves missing the power that God has intended for us and the means of being who God intends us to be. And we're calling this series Church, Why Bother? And we're, we're going to look through this entire letter of 1 Timothy to seek to understand the ministry and the mission and the purpose of the church. We want you to have confidence that the way that God has organized and designed and called us to be as a people of God is of utmost importance in our lives. But we've also got to understand the church has a message. And if we don't get the message right, if we, if we get distracted or divided or sidelined by something else other than the gospel itself, we're going to find ourselves pretty weak, pretty inept, and we're going to miss entirely what God has for us. So Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, his, his young disciple in ministry, to help Timothy organize and lead the church well. And the application is here for us as well. This is for us to see the lessons that, that Paul speaks to Timothy about are true for us today, that if we would keep the main thing, the main thing, the church will flourish and thrive. But a church that takes its eye off the main thing, a people that, that are sidetracked and diverted and distracted, even if that people grows numerically, even if we're busting at the seams with people, if we take our eyes off the main thing, we won't be what God intends us to be. So this letter, and specifically this passage in 1 Timothy, is a call from God for us to be gospel-centered people. It's a call for us today to hold fast the gospel. That's the refrain you're going to hear from me all morning this morning. Hold fast the gospel. That is what we are called to be. That is who we are called to be. And that is where the power for our lives, for our growth, for ministry, for all of it happens in the church. Now, let me clarify real quickly for us, or at least define. You might say, okay, well, the gospel, that has a lot of different meaning. That has a lot of different uh, things to different people. So, so what do you mean? What are you talking about when you say the gospel? Well, let me sum it up for us very carefully this way. The gospel is the good news message. It's the proclamation that although humanity is under God's curse and wrath because of our rebellion and our rejection of him, which we call our sin, God sent his son. He gave his son, Jesus Christ, for us. And Jesus is the perfect substitute because he lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. He took our place in receiving the penalty for sin and dying on the cross. And Jesus was raised on the third day from death to life to secure our salvation and hope. 
So the good news is that anyone who repents and turns from their sins and places their hope in Jesus as their Savior and Lord, they will be saved. That's the good news that we're called to hold fast to. Christ is the Savior. Within that call, though, there's the question. It's a bigger question. If we hold fast to that gospel, that we're far deeper sinners than we could ever imagine, and yet we are more deeply loved than we could ever hope in Christ Jesus. If we hold fast to that gospel, what will happen? Or another way to ask it is, why should we hold fast to the gospel? Why should we hold fast to the gospel? I want to organize this passage just in three ways to show us three ways that we we find it important to hold fast to the gospel. The first one is this. We should hold fast to the gospel. Hold the gospel so that sincere faith and love may abound. When the gospel is present in our lives, true faith, true trust in God, and true love for him and for others, it grows, it flourishes. We become people of trusting God more and more and people of love to one another and to him all the more. The deeper we cling to the gospel, the more we treasure it, the more we uphold and draw our help from Christ, the more his grace comes to us, the more faith we have in him, the more we flourish as a people. Now, Paul is very concerned that this is not happening in Ephesus. It's the very reason he left Timothy there. He says in verse 3, I urge you, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Like, Timothy, you're staying there in Ephesus. I've got a job for you and a task. And it's a tall task. It's not, this is not a cushy job for Timothy. Timothy, you're there in Ephesus, and your, your job is to charge. It's to command these certain persons in the church, these certain people, not to teach any diff, different doctrine. Apparently, there is a group that had risen up in the uh, Ephesian church that were, that were teaching false things. They, they had, this is how Paul describes it in verse 4. They devoted themselves to myths and endless genealogies, promoting speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And when Paul speaks of the stewardship from God that is by faith, that's just his way of saying the gospel. These guys have diverted from the gospel. They're all focused on, on these myths, these endless genealogies. Some scholars have said they were looking into the Old Testament in, in ways that the Old Testament shouldn't be used. They were interpreting it incorrectly. They were uh, mythologically uh, making it something it wasn't. Pure, they were promoting speculation. Crazy theories. Offbeat topics. Down these rabbit trails of genealogies and myths. That's what their focus was on in that church, not the stewardship from God that is by faith. The gospel. Isn't that how we embrace the gospel? By faith? The stewardship and the ministry entrusted to us is that we, we receive the gospel by faith and we pass it on by faith. We hold fast to the gospel. Now these, these false teachers, they were making stuff up. They were off in the weeds and there developed kind of this personality cult around them. They devoted themselves to this stuff. And you might think, well, Paul, that's kind of mean. I mean, can't, just let them be. You, know, just, you don't need to be so hardcore, dogmatic, stringent about this stuff. But notice here what Paul says his motive is. The aim of our charge, the whole reason of this, he says, is love. Verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and good conscience and sincere faith. He says, I'm, I am after this, that you hold the gospel, that you hold it fast, so that love abounds, so that faith abounds, out of a pure heart, out of a sincere faith. 
But these guys, these certain persons, verse 6, by swerving from these, by swerving from the gospel, sincere faith, true love, they've wandered into a vain discussion. They're arrogant, he says. They desire to be teachers of the law. And they are without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. They're just ignorant, arrogant, wannabe teachers focused on all this crazy stuff, these vain discussions that don't really matter, and they're trying to thrust that upon the church. Paul says, I'm after love. I, I want to see love flourish in this church. I want to see faith, pure conscience, not these vain, silly, stupid discussions that are there, not this pride that, that these people walk in and say, hey, I can be a teacher. I know nothing of what I'm talking about, but I can tell you what it is, and that's the problem. Think about the folks today that, that overemphasize plotting out prophetic teaching and making timelines of the end times. You know, they'll say, well, Jesus Christ is coming back in such and such a date, and let me show to you, let me prove to you. And they do these uh, interpretive gymnastics in the Bible to, to prove their point and to somehow make you feel stupid so that they seem smart and you follow along with their dumb teaching. That's the kind of stuff that Paul's talking about. Or the folks that say there's some sort of secret Bible code, that if you map out the Hebrew uh, text and you arrange it in a certain way and then you get your super magic decoder ring and you figure it out like you'll know more about the Bible than anybody else and you should follow them, that's the kind of foolishness that Paul is talking about here. And what's happening in the church of Ephesus, we're not that different today, are we? It's an arrogant distraction from the gospel itself. They are saying things that they know nothing about, making confident assertions. And really at the bottom of it, it's all pride. They want to be the big deal, not Jesus being the big deal. Now here's what he says. With them desiring to be teachers of the law, you might think, well, the law, we should just throw the law out. Like, we shouldn't have it. That way, nobody's making a mess of it. Well, Paul says this. He says, no, we know that the law is good. And when he's talking about the law here, he's talking about what we would call the Old Testament scriptures. The, the, the books of Genesis through Malachi. These are the laws. Some would describe it in that way. Paul's saying the law, the Old Testament scriptures are good, and here's why they are good. They're good if one uses it lawfully or rightfully because of this. The law, he says, is not laid down for the just, not for the righteous, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers and others. Paul's saying the law is for sinners. Here's why. When you read the Old Testament, let's just, let's just take it exactly for what it says. When you read the law in the Old Testament, things like the Ten Commandments, how do you feel walking away from that? Do, do you feel pretty proud? Do you feel pretty, oh, hey, I'm doing a good job here with this law, you know, like love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Yeah, I'm scoring a 10 for 10 on that one. Have, have no other gods before me. Oh, yeah, perfect there. Honor your father and mother. Well, there's that one time, you know. Don't bear false witness. Well, I've never lied. Hey, oh. No, nobody reads the Ten Commandments and walks where they shouldn't walk away going, hey, I got that all down. Jesus met a guy once who said, yeah, I've got it all figured out. And Jesus is like, sell all you have and give to the poor and then come follow me. And he's like, I can't do that because I love this stuff. When we read the Old Testament, it does point out and it does verify we're a mess. We're sinners. And that's part of the point. The scriptures are there to show us our sin, to show us how broken we are, but not to leave us there. They're to point us to the Savior. The Old Testament scriptures do that. They show us our failure. They show us our brokenness. They show us our sin, and they show us that God has sent a rescuer. 
They point us forward to the fact of the Messiah who's come to rescue us and give himself for us. All scripture points to Jesus. And so the law, as Paul talks about here, it calls out our sin and points us to the need that we have for a Savior so that we will come to that Savior, so that we will seek and we will find that Savior. He says, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless, for those who are living in sin, who are outside, they're, they're teaching and following what is contrary to sound doctrine, so that... As the gospel comes along, the glory, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, in which I have been entrusted, changes their life. We hold fast the gospel so that love and sincere faith grow. We hold fast the gospel because we see our need for a savior. Think of it this way: when you're, when you're cooking something and you take away the main ingredient, like the most essential important part of the, the, the recipe, you won't have something that's good and nourishing right? You may have food. You may have something edible. It's probably going to be disgusting, but it's not nourishing. It's not good. If we fail to hold fast the gospel, we may have a form of religion. We have a form of Christianity, but we will not have the real thing. We will not have truth and grace. So we need to hold fast the gospel because that's how it produces flourishing in our lives. The gospel produces sincere faith. The gospel produces love within us. That's what we're called to be. Not people that just know a lot more than everybody else, but people of love. If the gospel isn't producing love in your hearts for one another, for God, you don't have the gospel. If the gospel is not producing faith and trust in God and who he is in your life, you don't have the gospel. You've got a, you've got a mimicked version of it. You've got some sort of fake substitute the gospel, though, if we keep the main thing, the main thing is we will hold fast and we will see sincere faith and love abound. Not only that, let's go to the second thing here. So moving on, Paul says, hold fast the gospel so that sincere faith and love abound. But then he says, hold on to the gospel so that sinners might be saved. Paul has in mind not just that the people of the church, the Christians in the church would grow in their love for one another and their flourishing. Paul's got a mission in mind. He's got the lost world in his heart and in his eyes and sees, hey, the gospel has something to say about those who are far from God at this moment. Look with me in verse 12. He says, I thank him who gave me, who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Now, if you just stop there, you go, wow, Paul's really big on himself. Thank you, God, that I'm a big deal. I'm faithful. I've been appointed to your service. That's not Paul's heart at all. Keep reading. He says, though formally... I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. In our language and lives, Paul would be saying, hey, listen, I'm grateful that God has changed me. I'm grateful that he has, he has now called me faithful, that he has, he has brought me in to be a minister of his because at one time, I was a religious terrorist. I served under ISIS or Al-Qaeda. I was the bad guy in the church. I was so opposed to God, stubborn as a mule against God. He says, but I received mercy. I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now that's, a, that's an important phrase there. Isn't that what we all do? We act ignorantly in unbelief. Every one of us in our rebellion against God, we're fools. 
And our, and our actions, our sins are, at the bottom line of it, they're unbelief in God. We don't believe his word. We don't believe his promises. We don't believe him for who he is. That's you and me. And Paul says here, I received mercy, and that's a clue to us. You can too. So he says, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. What the gospel does, producing love and faith, it overflowed and God's grace came upon me. I received mercy. And so he comes to the center of it. He says, this saying is trustworthy and true. He's like, you can bank your life on this statement. Gospel in a nutshell. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the gospel in a nutshell. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul says, oh, and guess what? I was the worst of them. I led the way in sin. I was the leader of the pack in, in just rejecting God and being a sinner. And Christ saved me. He saved me. He said, that's, that's why this is so important. He's, he's looking at his life as a testimony to us. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, but I receive mercy for this reason. You say, why did, why did God save Paul? I mean, he was the worst, absolutely the worst. Why did God save him? For this reason, that as the worst, as the foremost, and this is Paul speaking from his perspective, right? He's like, you guys aren't half bad. Me, terrible, horrible. But I receive mercy that as the worst or as the foremost, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who believe in him for eternal life. Here's what he's saying. If God can be patient with a stubborn religious terrorist who hates him and persecutes his people, if God can save that kind of person, the worst, he can save you. He can save me. The example is there for us in Paul's life. God saves sinners, even the worst ones. And if you, if you question that, you say, well, no, no, I got Paul beat. Really? You blown up any churches lately? Stood and watched the execution of Christians and applauded it? Has that been your game lately? Blasphemed against God? No, Paul's saying, I'm the worst, and God saved me, and that's a proof that he can save you too. Christ Jesus came to save sinners. And so he issues praise to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever. That's the reality of what God does. If we hold fast the gospel, what we are doing is we are showing and we are telling that those who act ignorantly in unbelief can be saved. Salvation comes through Jesus' work, not our own efforts or our wisdom. Holding the gospel is how we see the good news of the gospel spread to sinners. We're saying, hey, listen, it doesn't matter how, how clever you are or how theologically sound or re uh, religious you are. It doesn't matter how much religious practice you have. What saves sinners is Christ, and you can get in on that. It's good news for you. Churches that well, let me put it this way. A lot of people think we have to be really clever. You know, our day and age, like you've got to entertain people through the roof for them to receive the gospel. Or, or you've got to be really relevant or seeker sensitive so that we can get a, get a good favor, get a, earn a share of sharing the gospel with others. And churches will build their ministries on wild and crazy things to get a crowd to show up. I like how Spurgeon put it, what you win them with, you have to keep them with. The gospel is the only thing that can sustain that reality. If we win people with the gospel, showing them Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, 
sharing that, displaying the love and faith that goes with it, people will keep growing in the gospel. The gospel will abound. People will be saved. So that's why we hold fast to the gospel, that we don't want to get distracted by putting the focus on something else. We want to see sinners saved. So reason number one that's here in this text for us to, to hold fast to the gospel is so that true faith and love abound. And reason number two is that we would hold the gospel so that sinners might be saved. That's the only power of God by which sinners might be saved. And the third reason we hold the gospel here, these last few verses, we hold the gospel so that we may avoid shipwreck or so that we don't shipwreck our lives. Now Paul circles back to Timothy here in verses 18 to 20. He comes back to me and says, this charge I entrust you, Timothy. Hold fast the gospel. That's his point. Timothy, I, this charge I entrust to you, my child, in alignment, in accordance with the prophecies made about you previously, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. But by rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Paul says, Timothy, here's the thing. I'm telling you, I'm entrusting to you, I am charging you to hold fast the gospel because, friend, if you don't, you may shipwreck your very life. Now, he encourages Timothy in his ministry. He says, listen, Timothy, you remember when, when there were prophecies made over you or, or words of God made about you. I think Paul has in mind here kind of what, what might be considered an ordination ceremony for Timothy where the elders of the church came around, this young man, this young pastor, and they laid their hands on him and prayed for him and said, Timothy, you are called to the gospel. Timothy, we see your gifting. Timothy, we see your calling. Hold fast to the gospel. Pursue Christ. Teach the word in season and out of season. Timothy, be an evangelist. Share the good news. As they proclaimed those words of God over Timothy's life, they were setting down a, a flag in his heart. They were putting down a marker in his life to say, when, when you struggle with your calling, when you struggle with what you're doing, look back on that day when we charged you, hold fast the gospel and keep going, endure, wage the good warfare, hold faith and a good conscience. So that's the positive example that Paul points Timothy to there. Remember that. But he says, but, but look at also the others that haven't done that. Some have rejected the gospel and they've made a shipwreck of their faith. They, they've disastered the whole thing. And he names two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander. He says, I've handed them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now this is the same language. Think, oh wow, that's really hardcore. This is the same language that Paul uses in 1 Timothy to talk about church discipline. These two men are probably the certain persons that he's talked about just earlier in this chapter. They walked away from the gospel. They shipwrecked their faith and their lives so deeply that they had to be placed under discipline in the church and excluded for the purpose of Repentance that they might come back, that they might learn who God is and be restored. Paul says that's why we hold the gospel, so that we don't have to go through the shipwrecks of our lives, that we, that we stay and hold fast to what Christ has given to us. The reason is we are all prone to wander. Each one of us are so fragile in our faith, and the temptations and distractions of this world seek to allure us and draw us away from the truth. But if we hold fast to the gospel, these temptations can be something we defeat and overcome. But friends, if we get our eyes on other things other than Jesus and what he's done for us, that Christ came to save sinners, the power to live a holy life, the power to stay the course, 
the power to wage the good warfare and hold faith and a good conscience, it's evaporated. It's gone. We have to hold fast the gospel. This is a warning for us. I think that Paul uses this good example in Timothy's life, this ordination council, if you will, and these men that have wandered away, a bad example in his life, to say, look at it. Survey your life in front of you. We can look at the lives of our own, others' lives. I hope you know people in your life and in the church that have stayed the course and been faithful year after year after year, trusting Christ, holding fast the gospel. They got home. And maybe there are some in your life that you look and you see they, they abandoned the gospel and they shipwrecked their faith. They shipwrecked their whole life. Learn from those examples. See them. Because that's the great cloud of witnesses speaking to us about the gospel itself. About why we need to hold the gospel. So that we don't shipwreck as well. We're called to hold the gospel. The church must make the main thing the main thing. If we're going to be what the Lord has called us to be, we have to hold fast to what he has given to us to guard the stewardship that he's entrusted to us. So it's worth asking this morning as I close, are we devoting ourselves to anything but the gospel? To anything over the gospel? Is there, is there stuff that you've just devoted in your life like, or in your faith? Like, I'd rather know more about that than Christ Jesus crucified, came to save sinners. Are we as a church, are you, are you individually putting the main focus on anything apart from the good news of Christ crucified and raised? If so, repent. Fix your eyes on Christ. Come back to him. Or do you see the gospel as just some sort of add-on to faith? Maybe it's the starter, you know, like, oh, we'll start with the gospel, but then we get to get into the deeper things. We've got to find the more rich teaching. Or is the gospel the central thing? If we hold fast to the gospel, we will find love and faith flourish. We will see sinners saved. We will, by God's grace and by his power, we'll make it to the end. We won't shipwreck our lives. But where we devote, uh, devote ourselves or de- divide ourselves or distract ourselves away from the gospel, we won't be who God has called us to be. So let's hold fast to the grace of God. Give us in Christ Jesus. Let's hold fast to the gospel. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.